Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Alan Delisle. Welcome to Delivering Perfect Parts Faster. Right from within the walls here at Phillips Precision, a manufacturing laboratory located in Boylston, Massachusetts, home of the Mighty Bite Pitbull Clamp, Inspection Arsenal, Laser Arsenal, and the M5 Edge Finder. Head on over and connect with us on LinkedIn, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and check us out at www.phillips-precision.com for guest info, company info, all of our product lines, as well as videos and demonstrations. Join us as we sit down with industry experts to discuss new technology, equipment, and process improvements to help the manufacturing community deliver perfect parts faster. Thanks for checking us out, and we hope that you enjoy today's show. Typically, here on Delivering Perfect Parts Faster, we focus uh, more so on the metrology side of the wall and uh, picturing in, in the metrology world. But because of the fact that Steve is also the inventor of the Mighty Bite Pitbull Clamp, it definitely brings us full circle, gives us a perfect opportunity to talk. We're holding out on the shop floor as well, which is why we wanted to have Mitch and Brian on uh, the show today with us. So uh, we really appreciate you guys joining us up and kind of taking a little bit of a different turn. Go ahead, Mitchell. Why don't you take the floor? Tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. My name's Mitchell Kirby. I'm vice president of manufacturing for Written Industries. Um, we're principally in the workholding industry, and we're probably primarily noted for custom tooling. So most of my day-to-day -day activities really revolve with working with customers on custom tooling. 40% of our, our gross sales is made-to-order custom tooling, and so that's where I spend most of my time. Excellent. Excellent. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. That's good. That's good. Why don't you go ahead and tell us who you are and talk about what you do? Um, well, my name is Brian Butler. Uh, I'm uh, kind of a jack of all trades here at Pratt Bernard. Uh, Pratt Bernard America, Atlas, Crawford Collets. Um, we specialize in uh, work holding as well. Um, we uh, are more of a generic work holding as where Mitchell is, you know, custom. Um, we actually work together uh, a few times a year uh, between us at Pratt Bernard and uh, written um, for special projects and things like that, that people need neat things for. But uh, we have a full line of uh, work holding devices, uh, whether it's for uh, lays, mills, oil rigs, um, or somebody's garage. So we basically provide solutions for uh, uh, pretty much anybody on the planet and uh, how they want to grab on, grab a hold of uh, a part they want to turn or machine. So you do. So you, you guys both do um, just turning stuff. Are you doing you know machining, milling, and everything too? Or yep, we do. We do machining, milling here too. Um, we have like uh, our NBK series or MCA series chucks. Um, they're actually perfect for drill, ta uh, drill tables, mill tables, um, pretty much, uh, any, anything, bench tops, uh, fixtures, um, uh, pallets. A lot of people use our, uh, NBK series for pallets. It's a flange mount chuck. So, um, it's a pretty neat, unique design. It's a low profile flange mount. So, um, but really, uh, 
it comes to top tooling and uh, how you want to grab a hold of your stuff is really so where it's that, all at. Yep, got it. Now, are these power chucks or are they? they yep. uh, we, okay. Both. We do I, all of it. Power chucks, okay. uh, air actuated chucks, um, hydraulic power chucks, manual chucks. Uh, some of our, we offer a, a key actuated 5C collet chuck, hand wheel collet chucks. Um, our variety is. Uh, pretty extensive we can do uh, and we offer an awful lot of different products to help come up with solutions for whatever you're trying to do right on got it cool See, so we also, go ahead go ahead mitchell i was going to say that that um if you were looking at the different types of work holding brian's involvement is more as a, a, of a generalist general whereas yes. we're 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 get into a specific industry most of what we do is is involving products that are shaft shapes so okay. most everything that we do is between centers gotcha. so yes there are some milling applications and that sort of thing but generally it's somebody using a mill to mill a shaft whereas yep. most of our work holding is oriented for lays and grinders uh in in any type of part that is a shaft shape so for us the industry the work holding industry for us as a specialist is it's round and ground so not everything that we are involved in is ground, but the principle is there. So for us, it's mostly shaft work. Gotcha, gotcha. So we're sitting here with Steve as well. How you doing today, Steve? Wonderful. Wonderful. Ready, ready and waiting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So real quick, this could be the first time they're listening in. Why don't you give everybody a rundown on um, what you do here, Steve, and what, you're, what you do for the world? Oh, boy. Well, I make a lot of people miserable. Especially, especially my wife. <laughs> Every time I have a great idea, it costs her uh, years of misery with uh, patents and stuff like that. But uh, I'll, I'll joke and aside. Um, I, you know, I'm the president of the company. Um, uh, like I was telling Mitch earlier, I'm, I'm just basically a, a glorified machinist. Uh, I went to trade school. Um, and I cut my teeth in, in the machine shop. So it's pretty much, pretty much all I know. Uh, and, um, so one of the things that I specialize in is, uh, coming up with ways to hold parts, uh, for machining and for the last, you know, eight years or so, uh, inspection work holding, which has its own set of challenges because a lot of times when you're machining something, you want to hold it, you know, really securely. And, and, uh, when you're holding something for, for inspection, you want to hold it, uh, securely, but not, not deform it in any way. Uh, and you're holding, you know, in our case, we, we hold a lot of, uh, injection molded parts, which are really delicate and they, they bend easy. And, and so it's kind of a, kind of a challenge, you know, but work holding is, it, no matter no matter what happens, you you pick up a, a blueprint, you look at something, and as soon as you look at it, you say to yourself, "How am I going to hold this thing?" You know, I'm sure you guys can all agree with that. Yeah, most definitely. Can you describe maybe some of the more unusual uh, types of things that you guys uh, do for custom? Right now, I'm looking at a quote from Pratt for a very large three jaw scroll chuck that we're going to mount into a live assembly. So think of a, yeah. a chuck that's married to a live center. And, now, and is, we call it a live chuck mandrel, and I'm quoting one right now for a customer in Australia. Is that that 48-inch? or? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a big chuck. Impressive. Huge machine. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. good size. Yeah. I had um, 
Xerox called me up one day and we were doing a, a custom live center for them. And I said, what does Xerox do with a live center? He goes, we're coding the role for the copier mm. and we're doing it between centers and we're having run out issues or a, I'm quoting a tailstock rebuild for a maritime ship lathe mm. uh, and the propeller shafts are 40 and 50 feet between centers, you know, and, and their run out requirements are intense, 10 thousandths of an inch on a shaft that, that might weigh 50 or 60,000 pounds and be 50 or 60 feet long or longer. Hmm. So, so the, the specialized end of what we do ends up with some odd applications, things that you just didn't think of or, or don't expect to run into. But it's a big impact on the customer's you know, productivity. The medical industry we might be doing screws and very small parts. So you have very tiny live centers that are very free turning and, and the point diameters or point length are, are specialized for that very small stainless steel screw that the customer is trying to, to make for the medical industry. On the other hand, you, you might be holding pipe for the oil field industry, and it's got a 14-inch ID, so you're using a very large bullnose live center. And maybe you've customized the angle or the, the shape or the size or the range of sizes it'll, it'll have to accommodate the customer's specific machine. I mean, sometimes it's it's very simple things like I'm trying to stuff a 20-foot-long part into a 20-foot-long bed, and I've got no room for the tooling. So you, you end up with, a, a instead of using an off-the-shelf live center, you have a customized live center that's very short because the customer is literally trying to stuff, you know, 10 pounds in a 5-pound bag. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that time that happens a lot in the work yeah, world. Yeah, industry. yeah, that, yeah right. it does. You know, and it doesn't have to be all that exotic. Uh, I mean, the, the, a lot of the bread and butter stuff are just very small changes. N not that we yeah. don't get into some really oddball things. Yeah, right now, we're in the middle of working on a 50-inch through-hole six-jaw scroll chuck for the oil industry. Uh, they're dealing with, you know, I think their pipes are 20 inches long. Their wall thicknesses are only about a quarter inch thick. It's a pretty impressive application but they want a pie jaw type setting and really it all comes back to top tooling. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I wanted to kind of backtrack on a little bit. One thing I noticed you keep going back to is the term top tooling. Can you, um, can me, can you describe what, what, what is top tooling? What do you mean by top tooling? Uh, top tooling is actually how you hold on to the part you're wanting to machine or manufacture mill, whatever it is. All chucks require top tooling and uh like if you're looking at uh, a four jaw independent chuck or a three jaw manual scroll chuck all of these are manual chucks they use american standard tongue and groove jaw system to where the base jaw is cut to an american standard tongue and groove system and that's where what rides inside of the chuck the top jaw is what gets bolted to that base jaw. Um, what comes standard on all these chucks are hard top reversible step jaws. They're cut and ground at specific diameters, um, specific radiuses, uh, specific step heights, but they're generic. I mean, if you're using a 15-inch chuck and you want to grab onto a 10-inch plate that's two inches thick, them hard top reversible step jaws are perfect for you. But if you're trying to grab onto irregular parts, castings, uh, anything uh, that's special, 
you're going to want to have special top tooling that's made for that part. And the reason why I say that is because all manual scroll chucks, you have to protect the scroll gear. And what a lot of people don't know is, you know, I'll just wheel them jaws all the way out using my same top tooling. You know, I've got at least three teeth engaged with the scroll, but my chuck keeps getting loaded up with chips. How do I prevent that with happening? You need top tooling so that the jaws, master jaws that are inside that chuck protect the scroll gear and you have full teeth engagement. So you need to just come up with special top tooling or custom top tooling, which is why I love soft jaws. I just cut it. I use offset pointed soft jaws all the time in the mill, especially for grabbing onto multiple, you know, larger parts, smaller parts. You've got to be able to protect your scroll gear and same with your independent uh, screws, operating screws. The operating screw is actually split into two pieces, basically. A grooved center is, uh, it's held in, the operating screw is held into the chuck by a grooved center, basically. And once you wheel that jaw all the way into onto the inner portion of that operating screw, you've lost your ability to torque that part down to the maximum specification that you can. That's when we get operating screw failures. A lot of our customers, they like, eh, if they're doing one-off stuff, that's fine. But if they're doing high production work where they got them jaws constantly inside, uh, the, we end up with failures on it. And that all comes down to them not having the proper top tooling to hold on to the parts that they need to hold on to. I know there's a lot of other manufacturers out there like Dillon and Abbott. They specialize in these top tooling things. And I've referred an awful lot of customers to Dillon and Abbott and other manufacturers, Kalamazoo Chuck. I used to work at Kalamazoo Chuck for manufacturing custom special top tooling so that they can protect their chucks and make them last 50 years. So, mm -hmm. and that's really where it's all at is how they've got to be able to operate that chuck properly to where they're protecting the chuck and they're holding on to the part that they need to hold on to and utilizing that chuck's full capabilities of grip force and everything. And what's funny is, is you look at a, a scroll chuck, what a lot of people don't know is the difference between a greased scroll chuck and a non-greased scroll chuck is about 50% loss of grip force. It is ridiculous. I didn't believe it. In my brain, I'm sitting there thinking, there's no way. There's no way you lose 50% of grip force between a, a greased scroll chuck and a non-greased. No, it's legit. I We have a our grip meters and all that stuff. I mean, you can see it. It is drastic, the difference between a greased chuck and a non-greased chuck. And that really goes for power chucks. It goes for all chucks, um, but not as drastic in the power chuck as what it is in the scroll chuck. If it's greased, it gets higher gripping force? Oh, yes. Off the charts yeah. higher. Oh, yeah. it's, it, you yeah. can't even compare yeah. it. And really where the grease needs to be is where the pinion and the bottom side of the scroll gear mesh. That needs yeah. to be greased heavily. And okay. The top side where the worm gear yeah. is, where the master jaws ride, um, that really doesn't need to be greased at all. You're, I mean, if you're running with coolant and all that stuff, I mean, yeah, you need to make sure it's free of debris. But uh, if you have if you have grease there, it just becomes a magnet for attracting chips. Yeah, and, yeah, right. yeah. When it, when when we first started with uh, with pitbull clamp, 
uh, we did we did a lot of testing and we had strain gauges set up and we, we were putting all kinds of forces on things and and we did the exact same thing. We we put a little just a little dab of actually use center grease because it's a nice high high pressure grease right at the heel of the uh, the pit bull clamp and a little a little grease on the on the threads and the the difference was was astounding. Hmm. You know, lubrication is, is important. It, it, you'd never, you'd never really think it. I mean, I never thought it yeah. until I saw it with my own eyes, and I was, I couldn't. I mean, I knew it would be a little bit, you know, but I didn't realize it would be as drastic as it is. It's over fifty percent grip force loss. So, yeah, you're, now you're really getting into my into my geek brain here. Now I really want to know why. Why does adding <laughs> grease make it? You're getting rid of friction. You're putting the friction into the yes. part. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right, that makes yeah. sense. Yep. Well, you're, you're, as Steve already said, you're eliminating friction in the system so that more of the force is transmitted directly to the part. It's interesting. Yeah, and in the system, you're basically on the bottom side of the system. It's bevel tooth gears, which are what 250 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, basically, they've been around for a long time. Bevel tooth gears. You know, it's it's radiuses, it's friction, and it's it's friction is number one thing. Do you, do you guys do do a lot of uh, female centers? Um, they're not as common as a typical, you know, pointed mm -hmm. male center. But yeah, right. we do female centers. Female centers are tricky because a lot of guys are trying to run really tiny parts, mm -hmm. you know, drill bits and that kind of thing. And, and it's really tough to grind a female ID when your diameters get that small. Mm -hmm. uh, the bigger ones are simple. I mean, it's just an ID grinder. I mean, I say it's simple. Centers can be extremely easy to manufacture. Uh, and extremely complicated, and it all revolves around what are you used to doing, and do you have the right fixturing? Just like you know, in your industry in metrology, it, it's all about are you tooled to hold the part? It's not that the part's that difficult to actually machine. It's mm. do you have the tooling and the fixturing and the knowledge base of how am I going to get it in the machine? I yep. mean, you know, we give always, yourself enough room to access it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or, or just hold it. I mean, I've got to hold two registers concentric to each other, which looks good on paper. I mean, you killed a few electrons on a CAD station, but then you got my you know head of my shop saying, well, okay, you quoted it and you engineered it. How the hell were you planning on building it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it all looks great when the engineer draws it. We've got no way to hold on to a 48-inch part, so we got to get creative, and we're using mighty bite type systems and uh we would make our own custom top tooling to go on top of our three jaw six jaw four jaw chucks so that we could machine specific parts and and have to buy and make special tooling just so that we can cut those parts so it's a there's a whole lot of creativity going on in the uh, uh machining industry just to create a good part absolutely i always say that you guys are every all you machinists, everybody out there programming and running these machines and finding solutions are it's it's absolutely an art form. You guys are definitely the artists. Um, so one thing I wanted to touch base on, uh, Mitch, you were talking about um, live centers versus versus dead centers. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? What's the difference between a live center versus a dead center? Okay, um, they're both work holding. But the idea being that a live center rotates with the part, therefore it moves, therefore it's alive. Live centers have bearings. That's the simplest solution. Now, depending on the live center, it may have a lot of different types of bearings, but it moves. It's alive. So that, that's the real principle. A dead center is a solid piece of steel. Now, and I talked about a tailstock earlier in that a live tailstock has bearings. 
So a live tail stock has bearings, so you use a dead center and a live tail stock so that the work holding rotates with the part and vice versa. You know, live centers go into dead tail stocks. And, and grinders are slow enough speed that oftentimes the work holding is stationary, uh, but on a lay that the speeds that you run in, you know, in this day and age, you know, it's got to rotate with the part. So. Yeah, well, one thing too with the with the with the, the dead centers, I used to do a ton of uh, OD grinding, and and um, what happens with a dead center, you have to use a uh, high pressure grease. You have to get the the um, the pressure from the tailstock. It's got to be just right, and if it's not, you end up you end up either the either the the uh, the part uh, shrinks a little bit, and now it's loose, or it could heat up which is usually the case, it'll heat up and then all of a sudden you, your, your, your part is literally expanding and pushing into your centers. It's a really, really uh, delicate balance to get those things just right. I don't know if a, lot, if a lot of people still do that, do grinding that way or not. But. I actually, if I'm asked, I always tell people the simplest way to grind a part, uh, again, depending on the size of the part and the considerations that you brought up, the simplest way to do it is between dead centers. Now, a, a lot of your high-end machines have live tailstock, so you have some very precise bearings uh, in the machine itself, but you're still doing it with dead centers. There are specific applications where a live center solves the problems that you brought up, uh, but my first choice is always a dead center because it's one less thing that moves. You know, the, the more things you add in there that move, the, the more the potential for taper and run out and finish and concentricity issues and that sort of thing. So. So yeah, tail, tail stock pressure comes up all the time, and lubrication comes up all the time, particularly when you're dealing with big parts. Oh yeah, do you recommend center lapping? Uh, we've come a long way in 30 years, so some of the need for lapping things has gone away simply because the equipment is more accurate. So you don't really need to lap the center to get the results that you used to get where you had to lap a center. Mm -hmm. So there's still a time and a place for it. There's a time and a place for all that stuff, but not so much anymore. Right, right. So I, earlier you had mentioned that, um, you know, you were doing work one day, you're working with medical screws, little microscopic medical screws. The next day you're working with a 50,000 pound shaft or something like that. Um, so you're obviously working in a wide variety of industries. What does your ideal customer kind of look like? Well, the ideal customer is a, is a customer that knows what he wants. He may not know how to get there, but he knows what he wants. I mean, yeah, and that sounds funny, but you work your way through of, well, you're telling me you want to do this, but what you really want is this other result, and I've got another way to get there, you know, that, that may work better based on our experience in the industry. Sure. Uh, so, so the ideal customer is, is really the guy that knows what he needs, or if he doesn't know what he needs, he knows where he's trying to get, and he can articulate that and let you help him get there. The worst customers are the ones that know what they want and know how to get there uh, and don't realize that they're wrong. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes you just build a guy what he asked for because you're just beating your head against the wall. And sometimes you have that dialogue of, well, I think that'll work, but based on the other things we do or this other product in our catalog or this other thing that we did for another customer, I think there's a better way to get to where you need to be. Yeah. So, yeah. There's always some give and take with a customer. Yeah, and I know we find here, you know, doing custom fixtures, it seems like, um, you know, that, that initial contact that you make with the customer talking about a fixed, fixture design, it's it's really important to get all that information out. Sometimes, like you say, the customer, they think they know what they want, and then, you know, if they fight you tooth and nail, it's like, all right, you know, you're the customer, we'll do it this way. And then a lot of times we end up 
going full circle and then they come around and say, yeah, you know what, maybe maybe we'll do it the, the other way when they figure out that it, it didn't work out the way they thought. Mm -hmm. So now on our side of the world, when we're doing custom fixturing on, on for uh, inspection and everything, we, you know, obviously we get CAD models of the parts and, and find out about the machine that they're using, the probe heads that they're using, how many they're going to be inspecting, what kind you know, what the critical features are and everything. I'm assuming it's kind of similar, but when you are speaking to a customer um, who needs a solution, what are like some of the more important factors that you take into consideration or um, in order to develop those solutions for your customers? You know, you know, for our industry, it's, you know, set the stage. I need to know the equipment. You know, is it a 10-pound part or a 10,000-pound part? You know, is mm -hmm. it a, a lathe or a grinder or, or a mill or whatever? So so I need to know that the, the, what is he bringing to the table so that I can design his, his solution? Because mm -hmm. I'm dealing with speeds and feeds and RPMs just like anybody else in the turning industry. And I've got to make sure that the solution that I'm proposing uh, is going to work with his equipment and give him the accuracies and and life expectancy, durability, and that kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, that, that he's expecting. Because custom tooling is expensive. You know, the guy wants to make sure he got his bang for the buck. The volume of parts they want to run is also critical. I mean, the, the solution that I might propose for a, a handful of parts, test parts, where a guy's doing prototypes, uh, is completely different than a solution that, that might be proposed for a guy that's doing, you know, 24-7 production. You know, you, you really have to get that whole picture of what his expectations are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, uh, I was kind of intrigued earlier, Brian, you had mentioned that, that you guys had the, the quick change jaws. Yeah. And um, uh, so, you know, as, as a, a business owner and, you know, uh, machinist and, you know, I'm, I'm always out on the shop floor looking, see how jobs ran, if we made money or lost money or whatever, you know, and, and uh, you know, the changeover is just it's such a huge thing. I, I think machine time a lot of times is is pretty consistent you know we're, we're pushing tools we're we're making chips and filling up the chip bins but you know one of the biggest places that that we could you know improve is is changeover so that that chuck definitely has me uh intrigued a little you've already got your work coordinates set your tooling dedicated and everything's already in there you're up and running inside of five minutes just changing the jaws over uh I think uh, my daughter can do it in about 26 seconds, and uh, she's a volleyball player in the 11th grade. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I mean. So, and, then, and, and what, would it, what would it take for, for a machinist to change over? The old the school, old school way? What did it used to take versus 26 seconds? Well, if you're using uh, um, 1.5 by 60 degree serrated jaws, you've got to pull your top jaws off. Top, count your teeth put your new top jaws on you got to do that with all three to make sure that they're uh, in the right location then you've got to uh, put it in your machine you know something like that usually took me around at 15 minutes or so 20 minutes just to get a new set in that's where our quick change jaw chucks really make a difference is the productivity aspect of it. Especially if you're using our monos, you can machine those jaws to where you're holding and gripping onto that part as close to the chuck as possible. So you're gonna be able to increase your feeds, your speeds, you're gonna reduce your noise from your tooling vibration or whatever it is you're dealing with. It's, it's really about how you're gripping onto that part to where really where you can push that machine to, to maximum limits. Cause that's where everybody's going. Trying to run it harder, faster, quicker, tooling's getting changed that way your uh 
your carbide tooling, your inserted mills, your uh, and even just your regular carbide end mills. The amount of engineering in, in one of those end mills is off the charts. It's just crazy what they're doing. So they're just wanting to try and push it. And pushing the limits. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, if I've been doing this. I'm sure you guys have been doing this for a long time. Uh, I, I went to school for machine shop in the in the 70s and graduated in 81 and and um, pretty much lived in a machine shop since, right? But, you know, we back in, in the even in the late 80s or, or 90s couldn't couldn't even conceive of some of the stuff we're doing now. You know, with the with the tooling that's out there, and even the tool paths that that, that we can throw at these parts, it's just it's just amazing. One hundred percent. Yeah. So earlier, you're talking about your ideal customers are the ones that know what they're looking for, know what they they want their end result to be, and then a lot of the, the long-standing high production shops out there. Um, many times, they fall into a procedure that they, you know, that they've been running since like 1947, and they're still doing the same thing today. Um, there's probably a much better way for them to get things done. There's probably a way more efficient, way more um, accurate and you know repeatable way for them to get this done now where they can really ramp up their production, um, but they don't go down that road. What, you know, what, when is it time for a customer to start looking for a better way? There's always a better way. And that's where a lot of people, they fall short on. They just don't know. A lot of these young engineers out of school or, you know, whatever it is, you know, young machinists, um, they're only awake to what they currently have sitting in front of them. Um, and they don't realize the uh, that a just simple top tooling could solve all of their problems. We've been dealing with a customer up in, uh, New, up in Rhode Island called New England Union. And... Uh, they were one of those companies that were doing the same thing since the 40s. And uh, over the last, uh, I think, year and a half, um, they've brought in, I think, four new machines uh, and completely redid the way that they've always done their parts. And they've increased their productivity by thousands of percent. Uh, mm -hmm. But they didn't know there was a way until somebody literally walked in their shop and said, I don't know what the hell you guys are doing. But there is a much <laughs> better way to what the hell than what you're doing right here. There's yeah. a lot of different options out there. But how does that person become aware that they're doing wrong? Somebody's got to tell them. Somebody's got to show them. Somebody's got to bring it to their attention so that they can actually look into it. That's a All tough right, that's one. Why, that's oh, why we have this podcast. Well, I was just going to say that um, it's trite to say it, but you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And and I don't really pay that much attention to print media uh, as much as I used to. What falls under my responsibilities here at Written is our website. And we spend a lot of time putting as many things up there as we can, showing people a lot of the customized products that we've built over the years because they're an opportunity to, to show the customer that, well, I didn't think of doing it that way, and maybe this particular product isn't really what I had in mind, but obviously these guys are doing something similar to where I think I need to be, so I'll call them. The wealth of information that is available now uh, is astounding. You just have to take advantage of it, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube video or a customer's website or just a blind search on Google trying to find something similar to where you want to go or figure out how other people are doing the same thing. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it always amazes me 
with the amount of resources that are available, it amazes me how many customers I run into that don't take advantage of that. It's free I, information. I agree. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, I think too. If you, you know, unfortunately, right now with COVID and all, I mean, we're missing out on some of these awesome uh, trade shows. You know, but I've always found that you know the trade shows are just a wealth of, of information, and, and you you walk around and you go, wow, that's that's really something. And boy, okay, well, you know, maybe we gotta we have to step it up and aspire to doing that. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to doing trade shows and, and walking around and seeing all the new cool stuff. Yeah, uh, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. Uh, I, I post stuff on there, and I and I look at a lot of the other a lot of the other uh, cutting edge shops, or they they post stuff pretty regularly, and uh, and it's pretty neat to watch uh, watch some of the some of their stuff. There's nothing better than eyes on the product. Yeah. So Absolutely. so you know we go to market through distribution. We also employ manufacturers reps. We try to find uh, reps that are very technically oriented, that are hands-on guys, particularly guys that have actual shop experience, because ours is, can be a technical product. So, so we like to take a, you know, a multifaceted approach to educating the customer, whether it's the website or our manufacturers' reps, or you know, I don't participate in in some of those forums. I do monitor them occasionally. If I see a you know a technical question pop up that I can answer, then I try to do that. Most of them don't like a lot of input from a, a manufacturer because they think you're only there to sell your product, um, and, and that's true to a large degree. But you know, I like you know when I see somebody doing something the hard way, you know, I don't find any. I, I like to be able to show them there's an easier way to do it, whether they buy my product or one of my competitors. At, at least you're not doing it. At least you're not beating your head against the wall. Exactly. Right. right. So, At times, there are certain outside salespeople that that I I love to have come in because. You know, they. It seems like whenever they come in, they save us money. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, like, they're the ones like, we want to hire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like you know. I mean, I, I have a guy you know, specifically. You know, he sells inserts and and cutting tools and stuff like that. And I and I told him, I says, man, you get you have rock star star status. Uh, when you you got something new, I want to see it. So. So you, you come in anytime you want. He's saved us a lot of money over the years. And, and uh, like you say, those the salesmen are kind of your your eyes from the outside looking in. And, and they can usually steer you in the right direction because they're 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 right on the kind of the bleeding edge of, of technology, a lot of them. You know? right, yeah, you got to get the salesmen that have broken out of the stereotypical mold of what salesman is into solution finder, solution provider. I mean, that's pretty much our whole entire staff. We're all, we're all technical guys. We're, we're about finding solutions for people. We're not about selling. We're not, uh, I mean, there's a number of times where I refer an awful lot of customers to other manufacturers. You know, I've told many customers, look, stick with what you've got, what you, where you need to invest your time and your energy and your focus is into custom top tooling. I mean, our chucks are chucks, you know, whether it's a bison, whether it's ours, TMX, buck, uh, four cart, it really doesn't matter. A chuck's a chuck. Um, I like to say ours are better, but, uh, <laughs> and we'll go through it. We'll, we'll sit down and we'll go through it all. And I'll show them that, Hey, this right here, what you're trying to accomplish, you're going to be able to do with the current chuck you have. You just need the correct top tooling to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. So well, thank you so much, guys. Thanks so much for your time and for coming on. You have a great rest of your day. Have a great rest of your week, and I'll talk to everybody real soon. Sounds good. Take care, guys. Take care. Take care. Uh, thanks, Bye. guys.